0: Hello my fellow Americans, by which I mean anyone on earth who listens to this podcast. My name is Duncan and welcome to Better Than Washington. This is the podcast where we review presidents in a comparison-based context. We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who just kinda showed up at the last minute. Today we are continuing our review of George Washington, the very first president of the United States. He's already done it a couple of times, so we are going to see if he can once again be better than himself. Today, we are actually doing part one of our discussion of his seventh year as president. April 1st, 1795 to March 31st, 1796. And before we begin this part one of our discussion, I do have another correction to make. In previous episodes, I have been very critical of how George Washington seemed to refuse to intervene on the encroachment of indigenous American lands he promised to protect. And for the large part, that seems to be true because, after all, the Northwest Indian War happened. However, in researching this episode, specifically the economic events of this year, I found exactly one example of George Washington protecting indigenous lands. Back in 1791, Washington issued a proclamation warning people not to do business with one James O'Fallon under threat of prosecution. O'Fallon, a member of a South Carolinian land speculation company, was mounting an expedition into lands that several states had tried to lay claim to, roughly modern-day Alabama, for clarity. The problem was that Spain the Chickasaw First Nation, the Choctaw First Nation, and the Cherokee and Muskegee Nations as well were also claiming those lands. And, since O'Fallon was not representing the federal government, any attempts to purchase lands he would have made would have violated the Non-Intercourse Acts. When O'Fallon wrote to Washington for permission to lead the expedition, the Secretary of War at the time, Henry Knox, warned Washington that O'Fallon's greed could have led to war with Spain, any number of Native American societies, or all of the above. Washington then issued the proclamation to prevent the expedition and even authorized his Secretary of State at the time, Thomas Jefferson, to pursue litigation against O'Fallon himself. Knox even asked Arthur St. Clair to mobilize some troops in the event O'Fallon tried his expedition anyways. Needless to say, O'Fallon did not go through with the expedition. So yeah, even though it was not his main objective, Washington did take one single action to protect the rights of select American Indian communities. For the sake of undeserved fairness, that is exactly one more protective action than I previously thought he took. So, hence the correction. And now for our economic score. We need to talk about a problem that had been brewing, and that problem was named James Greenleaf and Robert Morris. The results of their actions wouldn't be felt until 1796, but the fact that they could spin their wheels for an entire year without interference was absolutely a now problem. Let's start with Greenleaf, who was born into a unique sort of privilege. James' father, William, served as the sheriff of Suffolk County, Massachusetts, during the American Revolution. He was the brother-in-law to Noah Webster, the so-called father of American education, Nathaniel Appleton, a famous minister and trustee of Harvard University, and Thomas Dawes, a member of the Massachusetts Governor's Council. James used all of these connections to build an import business, and during the 1780s he used that business to make frequent trips to the Netherlands so he could sell stocks in the Bank of the United States and general bonds. Specifically, he was selling to the aristocracy of the Netherlands, and therefore used these trips as an opportunity to network with Dutch nobility and the Nouveau-Riche. He spent a few weeks as a consul at the United States Embassy in Amsterdam, specifically because of those connections. He permanently returned to the United States in 1793, and immediately began setting up more connections in Washington, D.C., while the city was still being built. He used the wealth he built up in the Netherlands and these connections I keep referencing to then buy a lot of undeveloped land in the still-developing city. Inevitably, James Greenleaf ran across Robert Morris in 1792. They were already partnering, as evidenced by a new deal Greenleaf and Morris made, with the Washington, D.C. commissioners on December 24th, 1793. For context, Morris had established his wealth in the 1760s, first by using slave labor in the tobacco industry, then by becoming a partner in an innovative shipping firm, which sometimes imported slaves, and then by inheriting daddy's money. In the 1770s, he used his reputation and wealth to become the chief financier of the entire American Revolution. Like, before we continue dragging him through the mud, Morris legitimately worked hard to get as many guns and bullets in American hands as possible. We can't take that away from him. But even as geopolitical chicanery and locally sourced chicanery caused his tobacco interest to collapse in the 1780s, he still held on to his reputation as the financier of the revolution and the second most powerful man in America when Greenleaf met him in the 1790s. Morris had also been engaging heavily in purchasing and selling properties in both D.C. and Pennsylvania at the time. And how, pray tell, were Morris and Greenleaf going to get rich by purchasing property lots in the District of Columbia? Well, they were conjuring America's second oldest nemesis, land speculation. The first oldest nemesis is racism, by the way. Both Morris and Greenleaf were attempting to sell the land overseas as investments to Dutch companies and nobles. They were hoping that, one, the value of the land would increase as the city continued to be built, allowing the Dutch to lease or sell the properties at a profit, and two, that the Dutch were interested in the opportunity to begin with. Sure, putting a bunch of money behind the expected value of land had almost bankrupted the nation in the Panic of 1792 and the Panic of 1791, but that would require them to be slightly less rich than they currently were, and Morris and Greenleaf were just not going to do that. They were perfectly happy to watch their loyalist neighbors die for America, but putting their spare change on the line? That's just too much. Naturally, the DC land speculation scheme by Greenleaf and Morris had been going on for two years or so at this point. The reason I am bringing it up now for the economic score of 1795 is because 1795 was the first year we actually received warning signs. For starters, Land speculation had become a national talking point thanks to the Yazoo land frauds. Since 1784, Georgia... Man, what is it with this state and weird money stuff? That's like the fifth time we've talked about Georgia on a federal-focused podcast. Anyways, since 1784, Georgia had been trying to shore up the exact boundaries of its territories, especially in an area near the Yazoo River, in order to stave off bankruptcy. Oh, that's why they keep doing weird money stuff. If Georgia had its way, then most of Alabama would have just been more Georgia. The state would have probably embroiled the nation in a war with Spain, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Cherokee, and the Creek, all countries that were claiming ownership of those lands, just to, again, get more money. It should be no surprise that these nations, as well as the federal government that wanted to avoid as much war as possible, made it impossible for Georgia to actually use that land for profit. For example, since the Treaty of New York back in 1790 made it illegal for anyone other than the federal government to buy land from Native Americans, well, technically that was the non-intercourse acts, but I'm pretty sure the Treaty of New York also explicitly included a clause that was similar to those acts. But regardless, The federal government was the only one who could buy land from the Native Americans, so Georgia just couldn't ask a local Chickasaw family if they could put their house on the market. Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, maybe I've been too harsh on Knox for his views on indigenous Americans, because he's actually doing something to protect, like, 2% more people than I thought he originally would, but that's water on the bridge at this point. None of these problems Georgia was facing were considered by the Combined Society, a secret society of land speculators in Georgia, from being created for the sole purpose of bribing and pressuring the Georgia legislature into letting them buy and sell the contested lands. They were led by Senator James Gunn, don't confuse him with the director, and their membership included Supreme Court Associate Justice James Wilson. Their immoral, and illegal, actions led Georgia Governor George Matthews to sign the Yazoo Act, which effectively sold the Yazoo Riverland to four shell companies the combined society fabricated for a mere $500,000 total. In turn, Gunn and the other society members had promised similarly dirt-cheap sales of the land to Georgia legislators, other state officials, some newspaper editors, and anybody else who was somewhat influential in Georgia. More to the focus of this specific discussion, some of those buyers immediately sold their share of the land they were about to receive to northern land speculators before they actually received it, and these northerners, didn't know about the bribery or the uncertainty of the deals. Among those Northerners were Robert Morris and James Greenleaf. Of course, like most con artists, they completely failed. By 1795, the entire Yazoo land scheme went to heck in a handbasket. George Washington's ears pricked up when the Yazoo Act was passed because it was a direct violation of the Non-Intercourse Act's Because again, only the federal government could establish agreements to purchase lands from indigenous residents of the Yazoo lands. The president sent copies of the act to Congress on February 17th, 1795, with a warning that allowing Georgia to enforce the law would make the American Indians in the Yazoo lands even more hostile to the United States. In turn, the House of Representatives passed a resolution asking Washington to use all legal means to prevent the Yazoo Act from violating existing treaties with Native Americans. The Senate asked Washington's Attorney General, William Bradford, to collect all of Georgia's documents concerning the passage of the law and report back to them. By May 16, 1796, Congress had passed another law establishing a boundary line between the southern United States and their neighboring First Nations thereby establishing the illegality of trespassing or squatting in territories controlled by southern indigenous American tribes. They also established a $100 fine for trespassing into American Indian territory and gave the president authority to remove squatters with military might. So, yeah, nobody was going to actually use that Yazoo land that they just bought. But even before that law passed, the people of Georgia realized that the Yazoo Act was nothing but one big swindle. After all, Georgia just authorized the sale and mortgaging of lands that, per federal law, could not be sold by the state. Voters in the state began choosing their candidates based on whether they opposed the Yazoo Act. They actively called for the resignation, if not imprisonment, of incumbent state leaders who were involved in passing the act as either the givers of bribes or the receivers of bribes. Georgia militia general Jared Irwin ran a successful gubernatorial campaign as a so-called social reformer to oust George Matthews and repeal the Yazoo Act, and by February 13, 1796, he signed a bill into a law repealing the Yazoo Act, which then caused everyone who had bought those lands to go bankrupt, or at least verge on bankruptcy, including James Wilson and a lot of other people. While a much, much later Supreme Court case would declare the Yazoo Act contracts binding and should have been honored, the damage was done. Many people involved in the Yazoo land scandal lost insane amounts of money, including Robert Morris and James Greenleaf. For those keeping track at home, the two people who are heavily buying and selling land just lost a bunch of money on buying land. While both he and his business partner lost money in the South, James Greenleaf managed to double down his losses by speculating in the North as well. His land deals weren't quite selling fast enough, so he started doing this thing where he would take out mortgages on properties or shares of properties he financed to pay off other lavish purchases. He tried to do that with a property that Aaron Burr tried to buy in New York. Greenleaf promised to give Burr money to complete the purchase in 1794, then he turned around and put a mortgage on that property in 1795 to get the cash he needed to buy a cargo of tea. However, the mortgage was a direct violation of the terms of the sale, so the mortgage fell through. In turn, he had to cough up the dough for tea, so his promise to Burr fell through. And Burr then got sued by the original seller of the property, which was litigated by none other than recently retired cabinet member Alexander Hamilton. So, before ruining his own life, Greenleaf also set the stage to end Hamilton's life. Both Morris and Greenleaf had another major problem on their hands that was exacerbated by all this money they kept losing. A lack of Dutch financing. Remember, the whole point of buying that land was so they could turn around and get some sweet, sweet Netherlands no. Wow, I couldn't even say that. Netherlands loans. Unfortunately, Greenleaf and Morris somehow seemed to not notice that the Netherlands were caught up in this little thing called the French Revolutionary Wars. You know, the war that Washington uh, signed to the Jay Treaty to stay out of. You know, that thing. Yeah, by the time January 1795 rolled around, the Netherlands was tired of the stalemate they were stuck in with France. Frankly, they were also tired of the authoritarian government of Prince William V of Orange. So, on January 18th, the Dutch threw a Republican revolution, ousted William V, and welcomed the French with open arms. And, since it was the government of William V that had approved of dealing with Greenleaf and Morris's land speculation schemes, all of that promised money disappeared overnight, thanks to the Dutch Revolution. As a result of all these factors, James Greenleaf and Robert Morris found themselves with a bunch of useless land, a ton of mortgages and credit lines to pay off, and not enough income to offset. Worse still, if they couldn't find a way to pay everyone back, then their creditors would also lose as much money as they did, and potentially default on any loans or agreements they had with other people. And so on and so on down the line until the entire American economy collapsed. (sighs) I wonder why land speculation was such a thing people did back then. Of course, not realizing how deep their hole was, Greenleaf and Morris chose to keep digging. On February 20th, 1795, they founded the North American Land Company, or NAUC for short, with their mutual friend John Nicholson. NAUC was a massive land trust for the time. Greenleaf, Morris, and Nicholson turned over all the land they were sitting on to the ownership of the company, a total of more than 6 million acres worth 50 cents each on average. And even at 50 cents on average, that's still a lot of money back then, just to be clear. These assets were located across Washington, D.C., Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Nauk was authorized to issue 30,000 shares worth $100 each. Greenleaf Morris and Nicholson promised a six percent yearly dividend paid to share owners to encourage investments all three men also put 3000 of their own shares in escrow to make sure those dividends could be paid in turn they could expect to receive a 2.5% commission on any land sold somehow despite all their other failures the creation of Nalkin these grand promises that they that i just listed off basically convinced the DC commissioners and other creditors to keep giving them loans and keep waiting for payments. But it wouldn't be an interesting part of a history podcast if things didn't get worse, now would it? Sure enough, Nalk immediately started screwing things up. So I don't, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, audience, I don't get this part either. Somehow, even though Greenleaf, Morris, and Nicholson gave up all their speculated land to Nalk, the North American Land Company somehow only received about 4.48 4.48 million acres. Don't understand how that discrepancy happened, but that's what I'm reading. In turn, this meant that Nalk could only issue 22,365 shares, and only 7,455 of those shares were able to be put into escrow. Apparently, in order to have enough cash to pay off their creditors, Nalk needed to put 9,000 shares into escrow instead. Greenleaf, Morris, and Nicholson managed to buy some time with their creditors by giving them 8,477 shares, but the D.C. commissioners who bought 6,000 lots from Greenleaf and Norris in 1793 demanded their first real payment on May 15th. Morris and Nicholson couldn't pay up, thereby defaulting on their purchases made during that deal, and Greenleaf, quote, misplaced, the remaining funds. So Morris and Nicholson bought out his interest in that agreement. The D.C. commissioners sued to regain control of the lots they sold to Nalk and to Greenleaf personally, about 7,115.25 lots. Morris, meanwhile, began defaulting on all of his other non-D.C. land investments while all of this was going on, a process that would effectively continue for the rest of his life. Yeah, stuff is going sideways, guys. I I don't know if you're catching on to that yet. The worsening financial situations that they were making worse for each other caused Greenleaf, Nicholson, and Morris to start hating each other as well. Nicholson, in particular, began publishing op-eds accusing Greenleaf of being the entire problem with NALC. And all the while, the lots they still held onto were neither gaining in value nor attracting buyers. Can't imagine why. While the stories of James Greenleaf and Robert Morris are not over yet, their actions have already tipped the first domino towards the Panic of 1796 and 1797. This money mess will be a problem that Washington will fail to fix before leaving office. So, how does this tie back to President George Washington or the Treasury Department? How could they have prevented the consequences of Greenleaf and Morris' actions? or at least minimize the onset of the Panic of 1796 and 1797. Well, for starters, Washington actually met James Greenleaf while the speculator was making deals in D.C. all the way back in 1793, if I remember correctly. If Washington had bothered to cotton on to Greenleaf's schemes, he could have given a warning to the various government officials Greenleaf was connected with. You know, just like how he issued that proclamation warning people not to do business with James O'Fallon. Could have offered a similar proclamation regarding Greenleaf. But Washington did not do that. Washington could have also asked the Treasury Department to intervene, what options were available there. Or he could have asked his Attorney General for advice regarding what to do. And we also know that from Hamilton's solutions during the previous panics, that the Treasury Department, at least at the time, had the ability to work with financial institutions to prevent financial crises. Maybe Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Wolcott Jr. could have stepped in to advocate against the North American Land Company or to provide some manner of bailout for creditors involved in those schemes. You know, I, I know too big to fail is, like, gross to most people, but... In dire crises, some kind of bailout is slightly better than none. But none of anything I just proposed ever happened during 1795. They just didn't care, or maybe they weren't smart enough to see the writing on the wall, but yeah, that was bad. The country needed the president, or the Treasury Department, probably both, to step in and do something about the land speculation going on at the time in order to prevent the panic of 1796 and 1797, and they just don't. This is a complete and abject failure that we can't ignore, and it's the only real major economic development for the year of 1795. We're going for a negative two this year. I'm saving the negative three to see if they still refuse to do anything when the actual panic begins. Yeah, negative two, because they failed to plan for anything, therefore they plan to fail. But diplomacy is a much more positive situation by orders of magnitude. After negotiating the tricky waters of the Jay Treaty, George Washington was keen on establishing a similar treaty with the other side of the French Revolutionary Wars. However, France was not excited to enter any new deals with the United States. Unbeknownst to Washington at the time, his own Secretary of State, Edmund Randolph, had been undercutting America's reputation in the wake of the Jay Treaty with France. We'll talk about that probably in the next episode. Also, France was losing a lot of its influence in the North America area and in the Caribbean, so they did not have the logistics to be a direct problem with the United States for at least a couple more years. However, who was on France's side of the war and who did have that power and position was Spain. They were allied with France against Britain at the time, and their control of the Mississippi River was preventing frontier farmers of the United States from selling their products while fresh which in turn made the Whiskey Act a total backbreaker when Hamilton proposed it, tying back to the whole Whiskey Rebellion thing we talked about previously. Spain was doing this in response to a border dispute with the United States regarding the exact borders of their claimed territory, Spanish Florida, and other Spanish-claimed North American land. You know, kind of what we were talking about with Georgia, the Yazoo land scandal, like that whole thing. Naturally, when Spain's Secretary of State, Manuel de Godoy, Requested an American ambassador for peace negotiations, Washington happily sent someone to Spain in June. His choice was Thomas Pinckney, a former governor of South Carolina who had been serving as the United States' as minister to Great Britain since 1792. Naturally, the support he gave John Jay during the negotiations for the Jay Treaty were instrumental to getting the Jay Treaty signed. Washington clearly hoped to make lightning strike twice by sending Pinckney to Spain to talk to Manuel de Godoy. Now that must have been some slow lightning, because Pinckney and de Godoy took four months to find a solution that worked for both countries. The result was the Treaty of San Lorenzo, also called Pinckney's Treaty, which Pinckney and de Godoy signed on October 27th. The treaty established a sharp line of demarcation between the territories of the United States and Spanish Florida at the 31st parallel. Everything between modern-day Mississippi towns of Vicksburg and Woodville and the modern-day Alabama towns of Columbus and Dothan was effectively a little gift given to us from Spain. As part of that gift, Spain also agreed to stop supplying weapons to the Native American societies living along the Florida-United States border. But with all due respect to Mississippi and Alabama, the most important term that Pinckney was able to secure from Degadoy was the right of the United States to freely conduct trade down the Mississippi River and in New Orleans, the port city at the mouth of the Mississippi River. You know, the thing that Spain was not letting us use previously. This created a massive economic opportunity for the United States, especially those frontier farmers I mentioned earlier. While this boom would only last until 1798, when Spain stopped allowing trade down the Mississippi again, it still gave us a few years of financial security. But America wasn't the only one getting a good deal. Spain received a mutual defense alliance for trade purposes with the United States, Seeing as Great Britain just promised to leave the U.S. alone with the Jay Treaty, this part of Pinckney's Treaty made Spanish ships just a little safer operating in North American waters. Spain also made America agree that the western border of the United States ended with the border to Spanish Louisiana, a promise that would last until Spain returned Louisiana to French control in 1800. Pinckney's treaty was a massive success. In some ways, it was even a bigger success than the Jay Treaty. Not only did it prevent potential hostilities with Spain, as unlikely as they may have been in the first place, and create a new market for American exports, it was also wholly more popular on both sides of the political divide. Both Federalists and Democrat-Republicans, which as a reminder we also call Jeffersonian Republicans as historians and history buffs, just for clarity, Loved the Pinckney Treaty. They both did. According to Wikipedia, Pinckney's treaty was a way for George Washington to regain some of the bipartisan goodwill he had lost with the Jay Treaty. Only some of it, though. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, they're still enemies for the rest of his life at this point. Another remarkable diplomatic victory came on September 5th. So, do you remember a little while back when I mentioned that piracy was the reason why Congress authorized the creation of six frigates and, with them, the original United States Navy? Actually, did I mention that? I can't remember. Yeah, so anyways, piracy was a big deal for the early American shipping industry, the Revenue Cutter Service wouldn't operate far enough overseas to protect those ships, and six frigates were made to fight off the pirates. Specifically, these pirates attacking American ships were originating from what was then known as the Barbary Coast, a region of regencies that swore fealty to the Ottoman Empire. Today, this area is now the modern-day nations of Morocco, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, and Mauritania. But boats take a really long time to build, fun fact. So, while waiting for those frigates to show up, They also waited for a diplomatic solution to recover the American sailors that pirates from Algiers had kidnapped. This brings us back to September 5th, when the United States ratified the Treaty of Algiers, the first of what would eventually become known as the Barbary Treaties. For an upfront cost of $642,000 and an annual tribute of $21,000, the pirates from Algiers returned 199 sailors to the United States, and agreed to leave American merchant vessels alone. Washington was not super thrilled about the treaty, because he considered it prohibitively expensive, but it was the only way to bring the Americans back home safely, and it also helped prevent future piracy from Algerian pirates, allowing American merchants to conduct their trade with more freedom and protection. Not all treaties, however, were sunshine and rainbows. On August 3rd, General Anthony Wayne of the Legion of the United States signed the Treaty of Greenville with various members of the Western Confederacy. These First Nations in particular were the Wyandot, the Lenni-Lenape, the Shawnee, the Ottawa, the Chippewa, the Potawatomi, the Miami, the Wea, the Kickapoo, the Pionkishaw, the Athapaskan peoples, and the Kaskaskia. Both sides of the conflict agreed to return any remaining prisoners to each other. The United States established an area of land that would still be under the control of these nations, but the Native Americans were forced to abandon their homes in the areas where the Northwest Indian War was fought, roughly Ohio. The United States also gave a nearly insignificant sum of newly printed dollars to the various nations. Most present groups received $1,000 each each group, not each person, but the Kickapoo, Wea, Athapaskan, Piancasha, and Kaskaskia First Nations only received $500 each. The number gets even smaller when you remember that the Athapaskan peoples, also known as the Eel River peoples, were another coalition of American Indian societies who then had to share that $500. Bucks. Those groups, by the way, were the Wailaki, the Lassic, the Nongatal, and the Sinkin. The United States claimed to establish a border between Native American-controlled lands and the lands controlled by the United States. Articles 5, 6, and 7, specifically, swore that these nations, once relocated, would be allowed to live their lives freely in their lands so long as they didn't attack any U.S. citizens unless, of course, those citizens were explicitly squatting on the lands relinquished to the First Nations. However, it would only be a matter of time before European-American settlers began invading Native American territory again without permission, thereby sparking more death along the way. So, as you can probably tell, I'm not a big fan of the Treaty of Greenville because it basically didn't work. It didn't fulfill its promises over the long run. Now, I have to be very clear about how I'm judging it, though. I have been defining diplomacy strictly in the lens of whether the United States could resolve its problems without getting more people killed. On the surface, it might seem like this treaty does the same thing. The Northwest Indian War officially ended, and the First Nations I listed above left the contested parts of the Northwest Territory without additional fighting. However, the Indigenous Americans in question did not leave by choice, but by consequence of violence. Forcing people from their homelands under threat of violence is still genocide for a reason. People need access to resources to live, and the vast majority of your access to necessary survival resources depends on where you live. Forcing ethnic or national groups off of lands, their culture has survived in for centuries, or as was the case of the Lenape, sought recent refuge in, is robbing them of those survival resources. And that's all if we assume that the Treaty of Greenville worked as the United States promised it would. But again, it didn't. These nations would be forced out again and again and again. So no, the Treaty of Greenville did not solve the problems of the United States without getting more people killed. No dead US citizens is not the same thing as no dead people. Obviously, the Treaty of Greenville is bringing down the diplomacy score. However, we also can't ignore the success of Pinckney's Treaty and the treaty with Algiers. I might be playing a little too nice here, but I am going to give Washington, who is responsible for ratifying all of these treaties and thereby bringing them into effect, a positive two. Now, normally, we would also have a war score to discuss. But for once, the United States, under the Washington presidency, does not have a war to fight. And frankly, the only good war is a war that doesn't exist. Unless you're avoiding invasion or preventing a genocide, and even then, soldiers fighting on the side of don't kill an entire race can often commit horrific war crimes in the process. So yeah, I still think it's rare to see a situation where fighting a war is the actual just thing to do. No war is the best kind of war, so George Washington gets a positive three. And just to be explicitly clear, the Northwest Indian War is no exception to that rule. America did not need that much land that quickly to justify the displacement and murder of indigenous Americans. And it's not like the entire American public was set on murdering Native Americans left and right. The Boston Gazette, a newspaper of the era that was starting to die out, had several articles written by an anonymous author who went by the frankly YouTube caliber pseudonym, Anti Pizarro. Good old AP argued that the entire war was a violation of the rights of American Indians to gain and own land. So clearly, there were European Americans opposed to the Northwest Indian War, opposed to the westward expansion uh, at the expense of Native American lives and opposed to all the racist crap that helped fuel the war. The only white men pushing for war were the land development corporations who supported illicit encroachment and squatting, the members of Congress who wanted more wealth for the nation as quickly as possible, the individual states who wanted to claim more lands for their pocketbooks and their egos, and everyone who didn't care enough about human lives to stop those groups. Which, granted, now that I'm saying it out loud is actually a large number of white men, but technically not all of them. But my point still stands. In no way can we consider the Northwest Indian War a just war or even a necessary evil. It should not have happened, period, the end. Well, like I said, this is only part one of year seven, so we're going to go ahead and call it here. Next episode, we'll go ahead and tackle the civil rights concerns, the integrity concerns, and whether or not we can get that sweet, sweet bonus point for bipartisanship. So yeah, that's all for this episode. Oh wait, no it's not, because we can have some interesting history facts. Uh, I'm calling them interesting history facts instead of fun facts, because last week's episode had a lot of facts that just were not fun, so I'm no longer promising fun facts. On April 7th, 1795... France adopted the metric system for all future measurements. The man who helped establish that system, Antoine-Laurent Lavoisier, wow, still have trouble saying that name, would have been so proud of it if he wasn't busy being a headless corpse. Thanks, Robespierre. On April 15th, 1795, a girl is born in the impoverished lower region of Austria. Well, I almost said Australia, and I don't know why. Austria. Her name is Maria... Schickelgruber, and in a kinder world, she would have been someone forgotten by history. Sadly, she will one day give birth to a man named Aloise Hitler, thereby making her the grandmother of Adolf Hitler. See what I mean about not calling them fun facts anymore? On April 19th, a little baby boy is born in modern-day Gambrels, Maryland. His name is Johns Hopkins and his philanthropic, that was a weird way to pronounce that word, donations will create Johns Hopkins University and the associated Johns Hopkins, why am I saying Hopkins Hospital? Jeez Louise, my pronunciations this episode are just off the charts. Also, um, before I found out this little fact, I always thought that the university and the hospital were named after two entirely different people and those were their last names, but it turns out it was named after one dude, and Johns is a real first name. On May 31st, France finally shuts down the Revolutionary Tribunal, the main mechanism used to sentence people to death during the Reign of Terror. France's National Convention followed this up by ratifying a new constitution on August 22nd. And on October 5th, France entrusted their response to royalist riots in Paris to a recently reinstalled artillery officer by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte. He crushes the riots and proves just how capable and ruthless he can be. Okay, but for real, that's it for this episode. My fellow Americans, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. This episode also uses and Horror by Kesho under the same type of license. You can find these songs and other works at the Free Music Archives, freemusicarchives.org. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you're using right now. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at ThanWashington with a capital T and capital W. If you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash betterthanwashington. Also, if you want to fact check me, which I always encourage people to do, I do my preliminary research on Wikipedia and then use resources that pop up on Google search to corroborate those claims. Resources for this episode include a master's thesis by famed historian Richard D. Younger from Marquette University, again, master's thesis on the Yazoo land frauds. Uh, I also read several articles about the Treaty of Greenville, and all of those links will be in the show notes below. Again, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I hope you all have a really good day. Farewell for now.